Coming to you via the internet and your friends at PipesMagazine.com, it's the Pipes Magazine radio show. The show that harkens back to the days of dial-up internet, one-hour photo, and the Y2K scare. Now, I invite you to sit back, relax, the smoking lamp is lit. Here's your host, Brian Levine. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Pipes Magazine radio show, the sometimes irreverent, sometimes educational, but always entertaining weekly pipe smoking broadcast, and I'm your host, Brian Levine. It is the first show of 2020. Happy New Year to all. Hope everyone had a safe and happy New Year, and hope everybody had a good holiday season. Uh, on this week's show, in Pipe Parts, I'm going to talk about a part of the uh, uh, a pipe part tool, and it's the the poker or the pick, you know, the little stick thing that comes with your tamper. And then my guest is an author, Paul Allen, and uh, his book is When Tobacco is King. I uh, talked with Paul a couple weeks ago and recorded this, and he's uh, it, it's, it's a fascinating book. I can't wait to get my copy of it, but you'll hear that. Uh, music, mailbag, and rant, all that coming up on this week's episode of the Pipes Magazine radio show. And uh, this week is officially Undeck the Halls week around this house. And, uh, yeah, we have a couple Christmas trees. And, uh, you know, I've got a lot of tobacco. My wife's got a lot of Christmas ornaments. So it's Undeck the Halls and pack them away for another year. Um, You know, for those of you that think that it's a lot of work to decorate a Christmas tree for Christmas, yeah, it's a lot of work. Um, I'm lucky most years I don't have to really help much with the decorating of the tree, but I do the lights outside and help set up the trees. Um, but you know what? It's really nice to see them and have them and have them set up. And then, yeah, it's a lot of work to pack them up and put them away. But guess what? (laughs) It's also nice to see them put away. (laughs) It's nice to get the space back in the house and kind of put the house back to normal again and, yeah, kind of nice to have those special things come out once a year. It's kind of like me taking out my uh, my special Meerschaum pipes that I like to smoke on Christmas Day. So there you go. Um, yeah, I hope everybody got a chance to uh, you know, sit back with their pipes and have a nice relaxing time over the holidays with them. All right, let's get the show rolling. So everybody sit back, relax, fire up a bowl. Thank you all for tuning in. And here we go. This is Kevin Godby from PipesMagazine.com with some good news. Our favorite Dunhill tobaccos, Early Morning Pipe and Nightcap are two of my favorites, are now back under the Peterson brand name. These are not match blends where another maker tried to reverse engineer their blend to make something that's close to the original. These are the exact recipes and tobaccos being made in the same factory, STG in Denmark, where they've been making the Dunhill tobaccos for almost 10 years. They had about a year and a half, two-year hiatus, and now they're back, still being made the same way, but now under the Peterson name. Check with your favorite retail tobacconist for Early Morning Pipe, Nightcap, Royal Yacht, Mixture 965, Elizabethan Mixture, Deluxe Navy Rolls, Flake, Dark Flake, and Standard Mixture, now under the Peterson name. Yep, still good. And we are back. All right, so 
conversation came up and I thought, well, this is a good thing for pipe parts because I don't think I've ever really, you know, ever really touched on it deeply. Um, so with every tamper, there is usually an end or a part to the tamper that you use to empty the bowl. Uh, with a lot of tampers, there is a straight poker kind of piece of metal. Uh, even my uh, my favorite eight deco tampers have a screw out uh, piece that comes out of the top of it, and it's used to uh, to you know to to get the get the tobacco get the dottle out at the end or break up the ashes at the end. On the uh, check pipe tool, the three piece pipe tool, there's a spoon, a tamper, and the poker. Uh, the reason I'm mentioning the poker is because most of us, and when I say most of us, most of us use a simple tamper that has a poker in it somewhere, and you pull the piece out and you use it to dig it out, dig out the tobacco. Now, I want to warn, I want to give a, a, a piece of warning with this, with the poker when you are using it to scrape out the bowl. Uh, if you look at the check pipe tool, the spoon part, which looks like the little cocaine spoon, but it's not for that because we're pipe smokers. Uh, it's got kind of rounded edges, so it doesn't it doesn't scratch up the edge of your bowl. It doesn't change. You know, it doesn't dig into your cake. If you're using the straight poker part, like on my little three piece, uh, my little three in one carry tool pipe, uh, you know, pipe tamper set, uh, it just has a straight. Yeah, it just has a straight poker that's got a slightly flat side to the edge. Well, with those, I want you to be really careful when you start digging in around around the sides of the bowls because you can scrape the side of the bowl fairly easily with it. Uh, you can knock pieces of, uh, of cake off into the bowl, so your cake will be uneven at that point, which would make your, yeah, your tobacco, your bowl kind of smoke a little unevenly. Uh, you can scrape up the inside of the bowl. And in a case where you're working on a brand new pipe and breaking in a brand new pipe, if it's bowl coated, you know, if that pipe's warm and you use that poker a little too aggressively, well, you can take off the bowl coating. Uh, and you also want to be careful when you're getting down around the bottom of the bowl. You just want to you just want to work the tobacco, not the actual wood of the pipe. So there's the rule on that. Now, the other benefit to having a nice straight piece of a nice straight poker part to your tamper set is that if you've got a bowl that's plugged up or you know say you tamped a little too heavy and you pushed it down well you can take that tamper that poker part of the tamper set and push it straight down towards the air hole and make an air hole in there and that will help alleviate some of your uh, you know that'll help save that bowl you want to be careful not to get too much ash down in there. So what I suggest you do is is dump the ash off the bowl and then go back in there and work that down. Uh, if you have a bowl that is packed too tight and that air doesn't help, well, you can kind of work that tamp uh, that pick or poker part. You can kind of work that to loosen up that bowl a little bit. And again, you got to be careful not to get the ash down in there and not get any of the uh, hot part of the pipe in there. So you you want to you want to keep it uh, you want to keep the ash off and keep the top tobacco on top. But again, that poker part is also used to 
uh, rescue a bowl that is not uh, not smoking quite as well. Um, I would never use that poker part inside the pipe unless you are cleaning out the mortise hole. Maybe you got a chunk of stuff in there. But again, you want to keep that poker part away from the edge of the tobacco, away from the wood part of the pipe itself. Uh, even on the uh, on the eight deco tampers, they've got a little flat spot or a little bend to them. Uh, so you want to make sure that you're only working the tobacco with it. You really don't want to hit the sides or the wood of the of the pipe with it. But again, so it's, it's important to have that. A lot of people may just carry a simple pipe nail. And that pipe nail doesn't have that straight, uh, that straight poker part. The pipe nail has a flattened edge that you use as more like the spoon on a check pipe tool. And it doesn't really do much help when you're trying to rescue a tight bowl of tobacco. Or maybe you got a piece of tobacco stuck in the mortise between the tenon and the, uh, and the draft hole. Uh, that pipe nail, that flattened side of the pipe nail may be a little too wide for it. So my suggestion is make sure you have a poker part of your tamper set with you all the time. Or uh, in the case of the mortise hole, just have a pipe cleaner like me stuck behind my ear sometimes. All right, comments or questions, post them on the Pipes Magazine radio show page or email me, brian at pipesmagazine.com. And in just a moment, my discussion with Paul Allen. This is Internet Radio. There's nothing quite like working in my shop or smoking my genuine Missouri Meerschaum corncob pipe, an American legend since 1869. It's the coolest, smoothest pipe I've ever owned. Check them out at corncobpipe.com. A Savinelli pipe is a testament to a long legacy, fortified by well-worn hands and destined to be enjoyed for generations. For over 150 years, Savinelli has been dedicated to sourcing the world's finest briar, committed to pushing the boundaries of pipe design, and devoted to the tradition of Italian pipe making. Savinelli is more than a mark. They're a way to help you make your mark. And like you, there can only be one Savinelli. We are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show, and joining us is a uh, an author whose book came to my attention through one of the trade journals, and I'm excited to you know kind of I, I guess introduce you to some of the uh, the pipe smoking world. But Paul Allen, author of When Tobacco Was King, welcome to the Pipes Magazine radio show. Thanks, Brian. Great, uh, great to be on the show. I appreciate your interest. So the I, I'm we're, we're not going to get into the details of the book, but the book is uh, essentially based around the uh, around tobacco in ni- 1927 and 1972. Is that about right? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. But uh, it's you know the book is kind of a combination social history of tobacco business, uh, some travel stories, uh, some philanthropy, but it's, it's basically based on my father's career in the tobacco industry, uh, coming from Granville County in North Carolina up to Canada and become, uh, becoming the president of the Canadian Leaf Tobacco Company, which was the second largest purchaser of tobacco and processor in Canada. So uh, it's, uh, it, it's a great story. So how does your, how does your dad get from growing up in, in North Carolina, right near me, to moving up to Canada. 
Wow, that that's really an interesting question. Um, basically, my my dad won a uh, a coin toss uh, one day, uh, sitting on the side sidewalk. Uh, well, actually, probably just the, the side of the road in Creedmoor, North Carolina. And Creedmoor is between Oxford and, and Durham, North Carolina. Yeah. And one of one of the these are high school graduates, and they were wondering what are they going to do with themselves. And uh, one of the boys found an ad in the Oxford Ledger that said tobacco cutters wanted in Canada. And they thought, hey, let's go. And uh, there was only a position for two. So they agreed that the guy that found the ad would go and the other two would flip a coin. So my dad won the toss of the coin and uh, away he went up to, of all places, Canada to cut burly tobacco. So he was a field hand when he started so he literally started at the very at the very beginning and you know kind of the the bottom rung of the tobacco world well yeah now he was he was i think he was 18 at the time so he had he had grown up uh in tobacco because his family both the allen and the lion family were noted tobacco growers in granville county and there's 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 great stories about the lion family uh but he he grew up uh, you know on a tobacco farm and uh, he told me once, he said, I, I knew uh, I didn't want to be a tobacco farmer. So uh, he knew how hard it was. So he thought maybe he would, you know, do something else. But, you know, he started as a laborer in Canada in Burley Tobacco. And then when the flu cured came to Canada, he grew one of the first flu cured crops uh, in an area called Tilsonburg, Ontario. And um, from there, uh, when the Universal Leaf from Richmond expanded into Canada, he was hired, and he worked his way up uh, to be the president of the company. Yeah, and what year did he go up to Canada? He went up there in 1927. So that would have been pre-U.S. Great Depression and the uh, oh, and, and just abs- 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 absolutely. And one of the things that uh, you know that I've enjoyed, I'm I'm uh, a retired history uh, teacher and, and law teacher in in the Canadian secondary school uh, system. One of the things that I enjoyed was kind of putting my dad's story into a historical historical time frame. And one of the industries that was really not affected by the depression was the tobacco industry. So he uh, he hired in uh, in an industry that uh, gave him a good living. Yeah, and I guess, I guess kind of protected him. Cause, and then growing up in North Carolina during that time, I mean that was the center of the tobacco world where he was from. Oh yeah, yes, it was for sure. Um, you know. Uh, I, I cover a lot of the history of tobacco with the natives and the explorers, uh, seeing you know finding tobacco uh, in the islands and and uh, when John Rolfe uh, grew that first crop in Virginia, it, it changed uh, the thirteen colonies and uh, the industry as as you probably know, uh, tobacco was used as uh, as money. Yeah. And uh, I I tell when I do my talks I I tell my American audience that. Uh, you can thank tobacco for helping with the American Revolution because tobacco was used as collateral to secure arms for the Continental Army from France. So, <laughs> yeah, it's a it's it's a it's a long history for sure. Did your families have anything to do with the with the Duke family or the R, or R. J. Reynolds family, which would have been right around that same time and area? Brian, that's the first time anybody's asked me that question, and I have 
covered that in the book. So if if people have not read the book, they you know they wouldn't ask that question. <laughs> but yes, uh, surprisingly, um, the, the Lyon family uh, had one of the first uh, manufacturing plants. Now this is before cigarettes uh, in Durham, and they're considered to be founding fathers of Durham, North Carolina. Zachariah Lyon had a factory that uh, produced a Pride of Durham tobacco and another one called Slash and Cut. And it was pipe and uh, chewing tobacco. And um, some of the Lyon family actually married into the Duke family. Washington Duke's um, uh, daughter married one of the Lyons and another Lyon uh, married into the Duke family. So, yeah, we're, we're, we're connected to the Dukes of Durham. <laughs> and now a very large college that does a lot of cancer research. Yes, uh, absolutely. And uh, one of the things that I, again, uh, mention uh, in the book is I, I, I do a chapter on the Dukes and Lions because uh, most historians uh, do not know or, or maybe the, you know, the predominance of uh, James Buck uh, Duke's uh, American Tobacco Company kind of surpasses all the other companies because he bought up everybody. But there were companies in Durham manufacturing uh, tobacco before the Dukes arrived. But, um, yeah, the, the philanthropy of the tobacco industry I, I certainly cover, and the Duke Endowment is, is something... Uh, that is just unbelievable. Most people do not know very much about the uh, you know, the philanthropy of the tobacco companies, even in Canada. Uh, I have a sister-in-law who lives in Montreal, and I asked her once, I said, uh, did you read about Mortimer Davis in my book? And she said, who's Mortimer Davis? I said, well, uh, have you ever heard of the Jewish General Hospital in Montreal? She said, of course, it's a world-famous research hospital. I said, well, it's actually the Sir Mortimer Davis Jewish General Hospital. He was the president of the Imperial Tobacco Company. Buck Duke appointed him for the American Tobacco Company of Canada. And uh, Sir Mortimer Davis uh, left a lot of money to the Jewish General Hospital. So that's the types of things I uncovered in my research. Yeah, wow. So, And then when, you're, when your dad would have gotten up to Canada, Canada would have still been, a, uh, I, I guess, still part of the British realm. Yeah, absolutely, and and again, you're 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 certainly uh, tuned in to the Canadian tobacco industry because you see the British Commonwealth of Nations had a preferential tariff for import of products, and uh, you know the Universal Leaf and Richmond were certainly smart because when they knew that flu cured could be grown in southwestern Ontario, and that's another story because some guys from North Carolina actually were pioneers in flu-cured uh, growth up in Canada. Um, the, the Brits were able to give a preferential tariff to any product that was produced in the colonies. So Canadian tobacco was sold in Great Britain and throughout the Commonwealth, uh, and it competed uh, with the American tobacco. Uh, as a matter of fact, in 1940, my dad went to Rhodesia, and they started up the Canadian Leaf Tobacco Company of Rhodesia. Because wow. the Rhodesians, which is now Zimbabwe, were growing flu-cured tobacco. And my dad bought tobacco, and they sold it uh, to uh, England and the other Commonwealth countries. And that, that tobacco, do you, would it have been considered inferior to what was being grown in the Carolinas and Virginia? Or I, I, I don't, when did it become equal or better? 
You know, um, probably depending on who you're talking to, <laughs> yeah. I would think the Virginians think that their uh, their flu-cured tobacco uh, might be uh, superior to the to the Carolina tobacco. Uh, but the flu-cured tobacco in, in southwestern Ontario, I have a map in my talks to because a lot of people think, how can you grow tobacco in Canada? It's got to be cold up there. Well, it is. My dad used to say there's only two seasons in Canada, uh, winter and June, July, and August. Well, <laughs> the growing season uh, is shorter, but the soil in southwestern Ontario was well-suited for tobacco. So the flu-cured tobacco in, in southwestern Ontario was probably a, as good, let, let, let's say as good as the best Carolina and Virginia leaf. We're going to take a break right here. When we come back, we'll have more with Paul and talking about when tobacco was king. So stay with us. We'll be back in just a minute. Have a look in your tobacco cellar. What do you see? Think of what you smoke, what you age, what you're drawn to in a blend that keeps you wanting more. That's your taste. And whether you know it or not, You've been leading that expedition since you first picked up a pipe, just by smoking what you like and liking what you smoke. But the funny thing about taste, it changes, and you need a wide selection to accommodate it. We at Smoking Pipes know this, and you know it too. So whether you're searching for a tried and true favorite or a singular boutique mixture, we're here to help you navigate the voyage of your evolving tastes. But you're still at the helm, smoking pipes in faithful service of the hobby. And we are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show visiting with author Paul Allen. The book is When Tobacco Was King, and in particular, 1927 and 1972 is the the time frame that we cover. Um, I'm interested, why end it in 1972? Well, uh, my dad retired in 1972. And uh, as you, you, you know, anybody in the tobacco industry uh, knows that there were a lot of changes in tobacco. In 1964, the Surgeon General's report came out that linked uh, smoking with a lot of disease. And uh, that, you know, it, it eventually cut back on the production of, of tobacco in Canada and the United States. And, of course, the consumption in yep. Canada, the United States and Great Britain dropped down. Now, you can't feel sorry for big tobacco because consumption is up elsewhere in the world. Uh, you know, Japan, China, um, the uh, Russia, Poland, you know, the Latin American countries are still uh, actually producing and, and consuming tobacco. But um, I, I did cover a little bit beyond 72 because in Canada, uh, one of the companies that surfaced was a wholly owned Canadian native uh, Indian group uh, called Grand River Enterprises. And they uh, continued to purchase tobacco. And uh, my records and research show that Grand River Enterprises is the second largest manufacturer of cigarettes in Canada. 
and they sell all over the world. They've got a manufacturing plant in Germany. So probably because my dad retired, uh, I I covered the transition program in both Canada and the United States, but uh, he was pretty well out of it when a lot of changes took place. So the glory years were, you know, at that time, probably from Buck Duke, 1890 to the show, probably the end of the 60s was was probably the golden era of the tobacco industry. Did your dad have any idea the the tobacco that he was working with up in Canada? Did he did he have any idea which was going for cigarettes and which was going to pipe tobacco? Because. Well, yeah, um, you know, as they do in the United States, uh, the Canadian system of purchasing tobacco uh, evolved from buying the entire crop. They call that the barn buying method uh, to an auction system, a little bit different than what they do in the United States. You know, uh, it's well recorded that the auctions in the United States have to do with the, you know, the auctioneers like Speed Riggs and, and these people that could sell a lot of tobacco going row by row. Uh, and in Canada, they did it uh, with what's called a Dutch clock. They put the tobacco out in rows, in sections, and they set the price. Let's say, uh, you know, position one, row one, they might start those bales of tobacco at, let's say, 70 cents a pound. And the clock went backwards. So it went from 70 to 69 and three quarters, 69 and a half, 69 and a quarter. And the buyers sat in a room with a little button in their hand. And when they wanted to purchase that, they hit a button and stopped the clock. That was called the Dutch clock auction system. It was it was really quite 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 an interesting thing. But uh, tobacco, uh, you know, kind of kind of evolved in Canada and the United States. Um, I'm not too sure if um, it was as good or or better than the American tobacco, but uh, they sold a lot of it. I can tell you that. My dad traveled all around the world selling tobacco. Yeah, well, were were there some of the more odd places that he that he went to that surprised you? Well, their their biggest customers were in Great Britain, yeah. um, Gallagher Tobacco. There's a whole list of them, uh, but he went he went to Scandinavian uh, countries. Uh, he was in uh, in the Netherlands and Holland. Right out, actually, in 1946, right after the war, my dad flew on a converted Lancaster bomber. There were only eight people on the plane and he flew across England to sell tobacco right after the war so I was able uh, through letters that he wrote to my mom uh, kind of tell a little bit about what it was like in England and Europe at the time but I think Rhodesia was probably the most uh, as far as I'm concerned the most interesting trip that he made uh, it, 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 it's such a small world the tobacco world I, I found a wedding invitation that was sent to my mother and father from a man uh, whose uh, uh, son was getting married in Rhodesia. And I looked up on the internet the, that name, and I found the man who is the child of that wedding, and I met him in Chapel Hill. And the Keyleth Tobacco Company was a very big tobacco company in Rhodesia, and my dad knew his grandfather and father. Small world. Yeah. Yeah, there's a whole other aspect of the tobacco industry that i've never thought of is that in world war ii uh we were predominantly concerned with sending ammunition supplies and men to europe and then after the war i would imagine there was a uh, a bit of a hunger for tobacco products free flowing again well, well that's true but you, you all should probably uh 
would know or should know that the uh, tobacco industry, the manufacturers, supplied at no charge uh, cigarettes to the troops uh, from yep. World War One on. Uh, as a matter of fact, it was part of the GI's uh, rations, uh, you know, a certain amount of cigarettes. So American Tobacco, Reynolds in Canada, the McDonald Tobacco Company, uh, shipped uh, thousands of uh, packages of cigarettes. Uh, their their product was Export A. Uh, the McDonald Tobacco Company, that, that's a great story in itself. The McDonald Tobacco Company uh, bought tobacco during the Civil War and somehow got it into Canada, manufactured, and then sold it back to the to the North. Uh, but William, yeah, William, William McDonald's story. I uh, that was that was the Canadian Leaf Tobacco Company's uh, biggest domestic customer, and he, he was a he was an amazing man. He he built McGill University, and again, most people don't know that. But uh, yeah, no, they uh, they supplied uh, cigarettes uh, to the troops for sure. Yeah, yeah, and then afterwards there would have been a a free market that opened up again and. And somebody had to go start filling those lines of uh, those supply lines again. So there goes your dad off to Europe. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, during the Civil War, be, again, because uh, Elkanah Edward Lyon was a captain and he won a silver cup before the Civil War for the finest hogshead of tobacco in the South, uh, he won it. Uh, he sold his tobacco in Richmond because the merchants competed for his tobacco. But um, Elkanah, uh, that story is so interesting because the Civil War had such a an influence on the success of the tobacco industry. Uh, when when flu cured tobacco, um, the the process of 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 you know curing uh, bright leaf tobacco uh, was developed uh, by a, a guy in. Um, uh, Pittsburgh County, I, no, no, Caswell County, um, in North Carolina. Uh, the, during cease fires in the Civil War, the troops from both sides would would meet, and the Yankees would trade coffee for Virginia bright leaf tobacco. And uh, the big thing that happened is when uh, when the Confederacy was was basically. Uh, surrendering around Durham at a place called Durham Station at the Bennett Firm. Um, you know what troops do when there's a ceasefire? Uh, they sit around the fire and they they tell stories and they have horse races and they fight. Well, one of the things that they had in common was tobacco. So they looted all the tobacco areas. They looted uh, Green's Tobacco Factory and uh, it almost bankrupted them. But guess what? At the end of the war, the desire for that tobacco fueled the growth of the tobacco business in 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 Durham and in North Carolina because the northern uh, veterans wanted that good Carolina Virginia fluker tobacco so that was kind of the first chance the north got to got to really experience what better tobacco was about yeah for sure now they did grow some tobacco up north in Connecticut but it was mostly uh, what they call shade tobacco or white white burley Yep. And that's used for cigar wrappers. I actually grew it in Florida, too. Did your dad have anything to do with uh, with cigar leaf? Not not much. Uh, most of their tobacco uh, went into uh, the cigarette manufacturers uh, in Canada and in Europe. Uh, but they did sell some tobacco leaf, mostly the blend. You know, uh, a, a cigar... 
is 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 blended. And of course, you know the wrapper is is the key part to the cigar. A good quality wrapper does a lot for cigars. But uh, you know they sold tobacco. I know that they sold a lot of pipe tobacco. There, there's a company in Groningen, uh, Netherlands. And I can't think of the name of it right now. I, I wrote about in the book. I wrote about so many companies, but uh, they did sell a lot of tobacco that was used uh, blending uh, uh, pipe tobacco. Uh, I'll, I'll probably think of it in the middle of the night. Yeah. Well, and if I understand it right, uh, the in, from the flu cured world and the burley world, the better the better parts of those crops were bought by the pipe tobacco processors from you know from the from the buyers at the auction so your dad would just see these buyers at the auction and not know exactly where the tobacco might be headed afterwards but uh you know, yeah yeah it it, it it was really kind of an interesting procedure uh in canada uh the buyers of the uh, tobacco uh, that were laid out in three warehouses in southwestern Ontario, Tilsonburg, Aylmer, and Delhi, Ontario. Uh, those buyers uh, sat there with that button in their hand and a sheet of paper that, with the positions of the tobacco. And, of course, they had a meeting every day, and they determined what grade of tobacco or the grades of tobacco that they wanted to accumulate. So some of that tobacco was destined uh, for the pipe manufacturers uh, some of that tobacco was was destined for the cigarette manufacturers, and and you know uh, different companies might want a different uh, grade of tobacco. Uh, so when they blended it with maybe you know a Turkish tobacco or whatever they blended it with, it was it was complementary. So uh, each of those buyers you know followed a schedule to accumulate the tobacco for their customers. Now let's fast forward. Is there is there much of a tobacco business, uh, tobacco growing, go, uh, going on in Canada right now? Well, just like the United States, it has dropped considerably. Um, I think in the in the heyday of tobacco in southwestern Ontario, there were eighteen hundred tobacco firms, and now there's probably less than a hundred. Uh, and, and, you know, in, in the 1920s and 30s, there's a little town in southwestern Ontario called Kingsville, Ontario. And at one time, that little town had something like 15 tobacco processing factories. So there was a lot of tobacco. That was all, all burly, but there was a lot of tobacco that was grown uh, in, in, in Ontario, S some in British Columbia, some in Prince Edward Island. But, you know, the same thing in the United States, the number of tobacco farms has, has dwindled. I, I've spoken at various places in North Carolina and Virginia, and I'll give you an example of how it's affected the, the economy. Uh, I was in Reedsville, North Carolina, and that was a yeah. big center for the American Tobacco Company. And I drove around and saw the ruins of the the warehouse and the factory and uh you know reedsville is, is to me almost like a ghost town and kinston various places uh have been really severely affected by the decline in the business yeah it's uh well i kind of live in the area and i see it all the time you can buy a warehouse there for almost the cost of the property taxes yeah for yeah. sure all right let's go forward uh so I should know this, but I don't. When did you uh, When did you write the book? Um, I finished the book in uh, the fall of 2018, um, and 
I spent probably five or six years, you know, putting it together on and off. Uh, I, I, I did, a, I did a lot of research. Uh, there weren't a lot of records because, you know, the, they were pretty hush hush. The McDonald tobacco company was privately owned and I got one document from them. Uh, it's now, uh, actually McDonald's sold, uh, to RJ Reynolds in the seventies. And then RJ Reynolds sold to Japan tobacco international. So they're manufacturing in Montreal. It's called JTI McDonald. But um, I, I probably spent five or six years, but I, I was lucky because my mother was a pack rat and she kept every letter and postcard my dad <laughs> ever sent her from all his travels. So I, I was able to do a time frame. And I also found that my daughter, my dad's uh, secretary was still alive. She's mid 80s and uh, she was a record keeper and had lots of stories. So I was able to put letters and you know, postcards and, and my own knowledge. Every time my mom and dad traveled, they'd send me to North Carolina and I live with my aunt and uncle on a tobacco farm. So I, I, I knew a little bit about it. Uh, I never worked in it. I, I thought I'd get a job once and my dad put me out in construction when they built a new plant. So I figured I didn't want to do that. <laughs> so, um, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was fun. I knew a lot of people. I met a lot of presidents of companies, international people, and I remember a lot about them, and uh, it was it, it was fun. It, 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 I, I just think it's a really good story. I, I enjoyed it. There's a lot of interesting people in it. Where can we go to buy the book? Well, uh, probably the easiest way is Amazon. Uh, I put it on Amazon in a paperback edition and also Kindle. Um, you know, in various places, uh, you can buy the book, uh, Karen's Hallmark store in Danville, Virginia has stocked my book. And in Canada, of course, I have it at the Canadian national, uh, Delhi tobacco museum, a few local stores in Southwestern Ontario. I'm hoping that Duke university will stock the book. I I've met with, uh, them. And uh, we're sitting with, uh, you know, paperwork on getting vendor approval. But, uh, there, you know, uh, I've got a few books at the um, Wayne County Museum in Goldsboro. The Duke Homestead, I believe, has some books in Durham, North Carolina. But probably the easiest thing is uh, through Amazon. And then you also do uh, public speaking engagements about the, you know, based around the book. But... Uh, you want to tell us some of the some of the places that you've spoken and uh, and what what does it take to get you to come out and speak to us? Oh uh, well, I um, first of all you can you can see that I can talk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I enjoy telling the story, and I started uh, I did a, a book launch. I published it myself. I mean through Amazon, but um, I started in in Tilsonburg, Ontario, at the Legion. And I did a fundraiser for them. And Tilsonburg is where the Canadian Leaf Tobacco con uh, Factory was located. And um, it was kind of a natural. I mean, that, that was the town's major industry. So I did a fundraiser for them. And then I did uh, the Delhi Tobacco Museum. I did a few historical museums in southwestern Ontario. I spoke in that town that I told you had 15 tobacco factories, Kingsville. And then I have a house in Florida. So on my way down to Florida, I arranged uh, by contacting the Chamber of Commerce, Rotary Clubs, and some historical uh, organizations to speak in Henderson, North Carolina. I've been in um, Kinston, 
I've uh, did uh, several talks in Danville, Virginia. I've got one lined up February the 29th, which is going to be a fundraiser, a book, me, and a dinner uh, in Goldsboro for the Wayne County Museum. That's going to be fun. Uh, and, you know, just uh, historical societies at Duke Homestead. I spoke at the Kenley Tobacco Museum in Kenley, North Carolina. So uh, I pretty well uh, uh, reached out and get a couple calls and, and people say, hey, can you work it in? And uh, I, I just love to tell a story. I have some great slides, uh, you know, pictures and uh, tell some stories. And I, I consider it to be a fun evening. Paul, I'm I'm looking forward to reading the book. I'm looking forward to uh, meeting you on one of your uh, one of your trips down through here, and uh, that'd be great. And I, I have a feeling it'll happen sooner than later because you've got a son that lives nearby me. That's uh, correct. Uh, but more importantly, I, I you know it. I I love I love the I love the story of your father, but I also like the idea that you're telling your father's story and backing it up with historical references. And yeah, it's a uh, it seems like it's an interesting historical biography of the economy. <laughs> yeah, um, you know the the article that they uh, they did in the Tobacco Magazine that that journal that goes out to to trade people um he, he pretty pretty well captured saying that this book is a combination of social history some business principles uh it's a travel story uh and it's a philanthropy you know and and kind of kind of hit on everything and i i always like putting events uh related to a story uh connected to what was happening uh in the world so uh you know i started I started my interest in kind of writing things by by writing some Civil War things. I never published it. I just did it for myself. But I was so I was so enthralled that my family uh, was involved in the Civil War that I traced uh, some of the members of the family, uncles and great uncles, great great uncles actually, and great great grandfather on where they went in the battles that uh, they took part in. And um, what was happening at that time kind of clicked all in together with my family history and uh, the tobacco story. You know, to find out that Columbus was given tobacco leaves and he was so impressed with them, he threw them away. <laughs> but, <laughs> but then Rodrigo Jerez and Luis de Torres, who were sent into the in, inland, uh, they were presented tobacco and they may have been the first tobacco or pipe smokers. I think tobacco, probably cigar smokers. They were the first tobacco smokers from Europe. And uh, Jerez took up the habit and took it back to Spain. But I was, I was so uh, interested and I found people found this interesting, the stories that go with it. You know, Columbus made several trips to America and he, uh, he named uh, two islands, Trinidad and the other one was Tobago. Tobago. Yeah, because of the prevalence of tobacco. So that's uh, it's 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 a it's a great it's a great history story. And I tried to put characters and people that I had met, uh, you know, interwoven through the story. And and up until a few years ago, uh, British American Tobacco had a very large cigarette factory in Trinidad and Tobago. Yeah, yeah, and, and uh, they're you know they're they're still very. Very large company. Well, the Imperial Tobacco Company, which is, I think, probably a subsidiary of British American Tobacco, 
uh, was in Montreal for years and years. Now their offices are there, but they don't manufacture cigarettes in Canada anymore. They do it out of Mexico. So, so that once again, tobacco is becoming a uh, is a global force, and you never know where it's coming from. But uh, Paul, normally we would wrap this up with a fast five final questions, but uh, I'm not going to do that to you because you're not a you're not a smoker. You're just fascinated with the story of uh, with the story of tobacco. That's true, and I'm probably not that fast. <laughs> no, but that's. But still, yet you you love the the history and the people around it and the and the product, but never uh, never acquired a taste for consuming it. Yeah, that that's correct. As I told you, the uh, the experience at uh, twelve years old of getting sick with uh, half a bottle of beer and that bubble gum and uh, popcorn and uh, a cigarette probably probably cured me for a long time. But I grew up around it all you know all my life and. Uh, I, I I love the smell of the of, of a pipe smoker. I I, I think that's one of the nicest smell smells that's going. Plus the the smell of, of fluker tobacco is awesome. I belong to some groups on Facebook, tobacco memories and tobacco photos and stuff. And virtually everybody puts a line in there when they're responding to pictures that other people post and say, "Geez, I miss the smell of fluker tobacco." Yeah. Once again, the book is called When Tobacco Was King. The author is Paul Allen, A-L-L-E-N. Paul, thank you very much. I look forward to seeing you down here and getting a chance to sit down, and um, maybe the weather will be nice enough where you can just smell me smoking my pipe. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great, Brian. I look forward to uh, to meeting you, and uh, maybe we'll get together and co-conspire for a talk one day. It'll be fun. And we'll be back in just a minute. Being at the forefront of craft tobacco production for over 20 years, we've been involved in some rather interesting projects at Cornell and Deal. From the Cellar Series to the Small Batch Project, we're extremely proud of how far we've come. So moving forward, we wanted to take it back to basics, and that's what the Burley Flake Series is all about. Burley is an underrated varietal, but there is a ton of nuance there. Using various condimental tobaccos to accentuate different aspects of the air-cured leaf, each blend in this series is intended to showcase different individual subtleties inherent to Burley. It's a simple concept, one that I think really speaks to the essence of what we do at CND, as a crew of folks who just love tobacco. It's also really good. Cornell and Deal's Burley Flakes series. Wherever fine tobaccos are sold. This is Internet Radio. And I am looking forward to getting my copy of Paul's book and sitting down and reading it and then uh, hanging out with Paul and getting him to autograph it on one of his uh, trips through Charlotte here. All right, uh, for music, uh, decided to go back to jazz and a little bit of blues and Louis Armstrong, who occasionally smoked a pipe. Uh, and this one is uh, live from the Newport Jazz Festival in uh, 1970. I'm scrolling through here real quick. Uh, 1970 something. Anyone that, anyway, this one is called Undecided.
And I found the date. That is uh, the Newport Jazz Festival 1956 with uh, Satchmo and the guys live. You've got freaking mail. This is going to be kind of a uh, scatterbrained um, mailbag with a whole handful of different little things in it. Uh, going back to the discussion with Paul, uh, that was the uh, Theodorus Niemeyer uh, company in Holland that his dad was selling tobacco to. Um, I also found some uh, research where it was some of, some of the great British tobacco blenders of the 1940s, 50s, and 60s were definitely buying leaf from Canada. And I know that it, in occasion in modern times, Canadian leaf would show up in the, uh, in the U.S. market so, for some of the tobacco blenders here. Uh, so you've probably smoked something that, uh, that Paul's dad had to do with. All right, going back to last week with uh, Ed Graves, Casey Ghost writes, this was a surprisingly good show. Brian gave us a very good review of Tobacconist Reserve Virginia Blend by Sutliff. Good to see a manufacturer doing a good turn for brick and mortars. Uh, those guys are really struggling right now. Uh, Ed Graves gave a very good account of himself in the interview. He was very articulate and makes a good case for his products. Bing is always a pleasure, even when doing a song that he's not known for. Yeah, I know. He, he was not known for it. Uh, also, uh, going back to last week, Nate Rose uh, wrote me and uh, said, Awesome interview this week. Ed made my apron for my shop, and it's an amazing quality. He definitely knows what he's doing. So... <laughs> Any of you pipe makers out there that are looking for an apron, I'm sure Ed can help you. Um, also, <laughs> found this. Thought it was funny. Uh, I follow uh, Mike Murphy's Pipe and Tamper podcast, and I listen to it, and I enjoy it. And every once in a while, I skim through the reviews to see what they're doing. And this one was, f this one kind of got me, and it's from Jay of Scottsville. Uh, and he gives uh, Mike Murphy five well-deserved stars. And he says, not only is this podcast entertaining, it is very informative. What's more is the host's wonderful interview skills. He is just great. What a relief to have a pipe-centered podcast other than the overrated Pipes magazine and the almost unlistenable and obnoxious Country Squire podcasts. Now, I have nothing, this is not in a rant, and I have nothing to argue with Jay of Scottsdale. I think everything he said is right, except for, I think I'm more obnoxious than, than uh, John David and Bo. So there, I think you're wrong. I'm the obnoxious podcast. There, all right? Got that out of the way. <laughs> and also, uh, as, I was, as we mentioned when I was on uh, Country Squire Radio, uh, Cody DeWint is a friend of Robbie. Rob, we had on uh, two years ago, just a little bit over two years ago, to talk about his uh, pipe making and, uh, and his uh, following of the Buddhist traditions. Uh, for those that don't know, Rob E. is uh, fighting stage three or four lymphoma, and uh, Cody is putting together a uh, poker night proceeds uh, to benefit Rob E. and help him out with the, uh, with the medical bills. Uh, it's going to be, the poker night will be up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where everybody, where that whole gang lives. So obviously you won't be able, you may not be able to get there. Uh, but 
you can email Cody, C-O-D-Y-D-E-W-I-N-D-T at gmail.com. They're also going to do a raffle, and I'm sending some stuff for the raffle. There is a ton of pipe makers that have donated stuff for the raffle and prizes for the poker night. Uh, the poker night will be on International Pipe Smoking Day, February 20th. So while I may not be there, I will definitely be there in spirit. Uh, but help this. Uh, let's help out uh, Cody and raise some money for a truly wonderful gentleman and somebody that I would always look forward to seeing at pipe shows. Uh, again, the email is Cody, C-O-D-Y, DeWint, D-E-W-I-N-D-T at gmail.com. Uh, raffle tickets are a dollar each and there's just a ton of stuff. Uh, if you're on Facebook, go to the Rob E. Lymphoma Fundraiser, Smoke em If You've Got Them event on on the event page there and you'll see all the stuff uh several people that have several pipe makers that have been on the show before donating stuff uh just a great cause and i can't recommend it yeah i can't can't say enough about rob so let's uh let's help him out all right comments or questions email me brian at pipesmagazine.com if you haven't had a chance please leave us a rating or review on itunes or stitcher uh, if you listen on Spotify, thank you. We're doing well over there, so we appreciate that. Can't leave a rating or a review there. And uh, if you're on uh, Facebook or Instagram, please make sure and share the Pipes Magazine radio show page, uh, Pipes Magazine radio show with all your followers, friends, family. Um, yeah, send it to people that you don't like because apparently it's overrated and I think it's obnoxious. Uh, anyway, n- enough of that. All right, in just a moment... Um, we're going to rant on U-Haul. This is Phil Morgan, General Manager of Missouri Meerschaum Corncob Pipes in Washington, Missouri. Our mission since 1869 has been to produce great smoking pipes that anyone can afford. We guarantee our pipes won't be your most expensive, but they just might be the ones you smoke the most. At Missouri Meerschaum Company, we don't just sell our corncob pipes. We grow them, make them, and smoke them. Missouri Meerschaum, Washington, Missouri, since 1869. All right, there you go. That's the end of the rant. No, I'm kidding. Uh, So Dan Locklear wrote me last week that he uh, couldn't agree more with the rant from last week about age 18 to 21. And then he also sends me uh, this link that says, uh, but just when you thought you'd heard it all, NPR reported this morning that U-Haul will no longer employ anyone who uses nicotine. So I clicked on the article to uh, to find it, and sure enough, U-Haul, the company that rents uh, moving trucks and stuff like that you, that you do yourself and you buy the boxes and you carry the stuff yourself and do all that, uh, they said in a news release, nicotine products are addictive and pose a variety of serious health risks. This policy is a responsible step in fostering a culture of wellness at U-Haul with the goal of helping our team members on their health journey. 
<laughs> this is the same company that gives you a dirty old truck and a ratty old hand truck and sells you boxes and wants you to carry lift the stuff up and down yourself. Uh, it, and this is going to affect uh, 4,000 employees. And and here's the uh, here's the funny part. It says. Uh, uh, U-Haul headquartered in Phoenix employs more than 30,000 staffers across the USA. There are 4,000 in Arizona. The nicotine-free policy will be in enacted in states that lawfully allow the decline of nicotine users as employees. The states are Arizona, Alabama, Alaska, Arkansas, Delaware, Florida, Georgia, Hawaii, Idaho, Iowa, Kansas, Maryland, Massachusetts, Michigan, Nebraska, Pennsylvania, Texas, Utah, Vermont, Virginia, and Washington State. Now, what surprised me the most is I was I would expect this stuff from a state like Washington or Hawaii. Hawaii being one of the least smoking-friendly states left in the country. Although beautiful to be outdoors in, you can't smoke there. But what is uh, what is Alabama, Arkansas, Texas doing on there? I mean, seriously, the, Texas still doesn't have a statewide anti-smoking ban, and they're on this list. I mean, what are these states doing? So here's what I want us all to do. All right, are you ready? If you live in one of those states that I mentioned, email your governor or your members of the House of Representatives or whatever and ask them, what other legal products are there that can stop me from getting a job? And I mean, seriously, if I smoke a pipe two or three times on the weekend, does that mean that I can't work at the at at an employer that did, that declines nicotine use? Well, there you go. All right, so don't use U-Haul and uh, let those states know what you think about it. I know it sucks, but don't use U-Haul. Use Ryder or somebody else. All right. Uh, once again, please keep sharing the Pipes Magazine radio show out there. Let all your friends know about it. Uh, if you're interested in picking up a copy of Paul's books, it's on Amazon. Again, it's when tobacco was king. So thank you to Paul for joining me. Thank you all for tuning in. And until next time. Who cares about the clouds when we're together? Just sing a song and think about sunny weather. Not only was it authentic frontier gibberish, it expressed a courage little seen in this day and age. Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah.